and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my friend Hannah Long for a conversation for Thanksgiving. We will be talking about Terence Malik, about the new world, about the coming into being of America, about the origins, and about the return to cinema of Terence Malik, one of the most interesting directors now working, and one of the oldest. He is uh, ready to turn 80 or so. The New World came out in 2005. He was 60, 61 when he made this movie, and it was his fourth movie. Terence Malik is a very strange guy. As a young man, he made two movies in the 70s that were very well regarded. And then he disappeared for more than 20 years. And in his old age, in his social security years, he has proven remarkably inspired. He's made seven movies since 1998 and is at work now. He is one of the few directors in Hollywood who could be called a master, who is very well regarded everywhere in America, in Europe, everywhere really, and whose movies have not only a distinctive style in terms of cinematography and editing, but also in the way in which he treats actors, in the way in which he treats dialogue. It's an education to watch Terence Malik movies, not just an enjoyment, and we will try to convey some of that, but our focus today is, for Thanksgiving, America. What does the new world really bring that is new? How did Americans become American in view of this movie? Terence Malik came to cinema from the academy, from philosophy, actually. He was working on a dissertation on Heidegger, which he dropped and decided to move into poetry from philosophy, so to speak. And it has always been seen in his movies that somehow he's a very philosophical movie maker. And perhaps in academia, he was a fairly poetic scholar of philosophy, too. He is accordingly given to dialogue and to the searching, to the interrogation of oneself and the quest for self-knowledge through his characters. And this doesn't always make for successful movies. Some of his recent movies, like The Tree of Life, were very successful. Others, like The New World, were not at all successful. But all of them deserve watching. And uh, after you see one or two, whichever you like best, you, you learn to look at the other ones with new eyes and to discover what a wonderful director Terence Malik really is. I think I'll stop here because, Hannah, this is your show. You recommended uh, that we talk about this movie. So tell us, why do you like New World and how come this has become your Thanksgiving movie? So this is a movie, yeah, I I do watch it pretty much every Thanksgiving or, you know, on a yearly basis. It's one of those that I find more every time I revisit it, even though I like it at a different level every time I revisit it. It it depends, I think, very much on my mood, how I feel about it at any given point. But I think that its greatness does lie in the fact that there is always something more to discover in it. So many things that even just watching it now and thinking through it and reading about it, I had never noticed elements of it from the fact that much of the dialogue is quotes from poems or from other obscure literary sources, I stumbled upon one of the speeches in Melville. So just just things like that. But it, it was also one of the first films that I watched when I really seriously got into movies when I was, I don't know, 17 or so. I was reading a book at the time, and this was one of the movies that it recommended watching. So it holds a special place in my heart for that reason. But also, I think that 
a lot of the themes in it are things I've always been interested in is the, the sort of uh, creation of America, the founding story, and then to tell these things as a myth, as opposed to a more staid historical account. This is obviously highly romanticized mythic retelling of something, trying to get at something deeper than just here are the physical facts of what happened. Here's what is, this means for the country. Here's what this tells us about the country. And of course, it takes place in Virginia, where I grew up, even if it's the less interesting part of Virginia, it's the flat part of Virginia. But that also, I think, feeds into a lot of the care that Malik put into the production of the film, which is something that I revisited last night. There's a wonderful documentary about it. I would say the last 15 minutes start to drag, but especially the first half of it is really just a fascinating explanation of all of the details that they put into recreating the Jamestown Fort with local materials and using all of the sort of things that they would have used at the time. Malik is the sort of guy who isn't interested in uh, building half a set and then shooting around that. He's a guy who wants a full set and then he'll figure out how to shoot within it. He doesn't use traditional lighting. Uh, you, you can sense some of the lighting guys that are saying, yeah, he doesn't really do that. We had to figure out a lot of, I, I was thinking, man, there had to be some very stressful production meetings uh, where they were figuring out how to work around this guy who doesn't do anything in any of the normal ways. But the result is incredibly immersive as you have this fully built Jamestown Ford again, in the location roughly of where the original events took place with local materials. They went through and uh, plant, planted uh, Indian corn. They didn't, want, they didn't want to plant modern corn, which is largely hybridized. So they found uh, some seeds from old varieties of non-hybridized Indian corn to plant, uh, as well as Indian tobacco, and, and planted those around the fort. Just the, the level of small details uh, like that give it uh, a level of care and of uh, authenticity. You, you can really tell, um, I think, that the ways in which uh, all of the, all of the, even the extras act uh, in that, like, they've been coached into seeing this as a, a, a real time travel uh, experience. It's not just, oh, you're coming onto a movie set and then you're leaving. No, this is something that you're, you're representing your ancestors because all of the uh, Powhatan tribes members were Native Americans and they talked about how special it was to come back and then really try and re recreate the language too, which is a dead language. They tried to recreate the language in this movie. So anyway, it's as a Virginian, um, it, it's a really fascinating cultural artifact to, to watch somebody take so much care to reconnect with locals and to really recreate history in general uh, in, in such a vivid and, and and sweeping way. You're right, there's something about uh, Malik's style of shooting that lends itself especially to history. Uh, his, uh, he doesn't make period pieces. He doesn't uh, uh, show the kind of propriety you expect that comes from the theater, how you stage a scene, the interiors, the exteriors, the motions. He, he really seems to speak to the modern moviegoer who has his sensibility would say sometimes it's like in a computer game that's an open world that allows you to move around he doesn't shoot a set piece the way you would expect him to in fact he seems to stage set pieces sometimes just to ignore them there's an entire scene of some historical importance that's happening in the background uh, it's a strange attitude, but somehow it seems to fit with uh, our democratic sensibility and with a kind of uh, individualism uh, he's looking, therefore, to build the most realistic uh, Jamestown imaginable and then give you an experience of it that is not monumental, 
or uh, theatrical or dramatic, but everyday, ordinary, that I think also ties up with his insistence on using natural light and his fame uh, for uh, cinematography. Uh, the man who shot this movie for um, Malik is uh, a famous cinematographer. His name is Emmanuel Lubeshki. He shot his next four movies as well and has won three Oscars and has a bunch of other no uh, nominations. And they seem to have gotten along very well precisely because of this common interest in using the locale and as much natural light as possible. And uh, that's, uh, I think, what everybody notices. Uh, the New World was nominated for uh, Best Oscar for the cinematography, as was afterwards uh, The Tree of Life, so that even when people don't really know what to make of a movie or its failure critically or uh, at the box office, everybody notices what these movies look like. They're just enchanting the beauty of the scenes, the fluidity of the motions of the camera, uh, for a guy born in the early 40s, Malik understands uh, contemporary cinema and the taste of the audience much better than you'd expect. You think that uh, he makes arty movies that nobody wants to watch. Nothing happens in them. They improvise their dialogue sometimes. But no, this is exactly what people deeply want to see from, uh, as I was saying, computer games to uh, whatever it is that people can do with effects nowadays. It's just that he somehow manages to film all this stuff uh, there on the spot. Everything is in the scene. Uh, he doesn't have to put tricks into the camera. It's, uh, it's unusual, no, very few people film this way anymore, but uh, in a way it's a testament to the fact that he started making movies in the 70s when shooting on location, getting out there in cities or outside was important. And it speaks to him. Uh, almost all of his movies are not just outdoor movies, but way out there outdoor movies, great outdoor movies, if you will. He likes to shoot nature and to remind audiences of what it is that we don't find in our way of life in the city. It's always about those things. And of course, it, this is the extreme case because it refers also to a time before there were any cities in America. This is the foundation of the first colony. It reminds you that of what everybody who travels around America is reminded of at some level. This great land, the, the, the whole stretch of the continent, it was there before Americans. Americans just showed up at some point and they move around somewhat. And all of this was already there and it doesn't really belong to us. It's, it's a strange sentiment, but I think everybody who sees the, the whether it's the astonishing uh, things in America, like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley. I love the Western, so yeah. Uh, when I went to Monument Valley, I felt what I expect Terrence Malik would feel if he went there. But uh, it doesn't have to be something that impressive. Wherever you go, you feel that this is an enormous world and you're just visiting. Suddenly imagining what a Terrence Malick Western would look like. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, that I think was another thing that struck me about it as I watched it for the first time is for as slow and as cont contemplative and as, uh, you know, romantic and perhaps even over romantic at times this film is, uh, the, the sheer beauty of, of nature that Lubeski is able to, to highlight in this is extraordinary. There were so many shots in it that just would catch my breath as I was watching it the first few times. And even now, uh, some of them, there's a wonderful shot of 
birds arcing over a sort of stormy sky and then lightning coming down into the into it as Pocahontas is looking out into the into the ocean uh it, it it's sort of foreshadowing the, the loss of innocence but it's the sort of thing that you can only get if you're out there nearly 24 7 with a camera willing to shoot when a storm is, is coming in uh that Malik really does create uh a sense in which that he he and all of his characters and all of his production team are out there in all weather. I understand they had historic rains that year too. So uh, they, they definitely felt the, the elements and you can feel the elements in, in, in the way that the film comes together. Yeah, you're certainly right about that. There's a reason nobody makes movies like Malik. It's because you have to film so much. You have to uh, accordingly treat the crew and the actors in a way that's uh, it's unpopular to say the least. Uh, people want to be part of these things because he makes wonderful movies. He never uh, lacks for actors or, or opportunities, but it, it is a very taxing process because apparently nobody knows what he's going to do except himself. And uh, everybody, not just uh, say the crew on set, but his, uh, his composer. Uh, in the case of the New World, James Horner came up with a wonderful score. And yeah, you don't hear much of it because it turned out not to be, after all, what the movie turned out to be. It didn't fit anymore. So uh, everybody has to put up with this stuff. I understand why there are not a lot of trans Malik's and why nobody encourages more to show up. But I think that also means people should be a, a lot more appreciative of the one we do have. Yes, there was a series of very humorous stories of Christopher Plummer talking, I think, to Colin Farrell about this experience. And Plummer was had a lot of resentment about being forced to climb a tree. Uh, him, I don't know, in his he was he was not young at this point, and uh, the shot was not in the finished film. <laughs> but uh, but Malik, you know, was insistent that he climb this tree, um, and you know, he, or he gives a gives another speech, and and Farrell, you know. It, ends up interrupting it or something in the final cut or like an Osprey comes by and Malik is more interested in that than poor Plummer's dramatic speech. Uh, he was, yeah, he had a hard time accepting some of that as much as he, you could see he respected Malik objectively. He was like, I don't think that I would be interested in working with him again. Yeah, it is remarkable who shows up for a second <laughs> There's Malik movie. You know, you get your one and you're done. Uh, I guess Christian Bale, uh, he was an exception. He, he was the star of Night of Cups, uh, perhaps the most uh, morally intense of uh, Malik's movies, uh, and the most Christian, the most overtly Christian, that is. Uh, somehow I'm, I neglected to mention this. Uh, Terence Malik is so strange in Hollywood because he's the only oh, obviously, indeed, uh, pervasively Christian movie maker. It's, I don't know what he does for a living, but uh, you can't see one of these movies without being shocked by how Christian it is. Uh, Hollywood isn't making Christian movies, of course, but you know, art cinema is even less Christian. It's strange, but there it is. Uh, you know, the, uh, Robert Bresson, uh, he had that quality. If you watch old French uh, movies, all of a sudden you run into this guy. He's, he's not like the others. <laughs> um, and so, so Malik in America. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating just how Christian Malik is, and yet how uh, how much respect he does gain in the critical classes. I don't think they quite know what to do with him, um, and uh, yet he he continues to defy all sorts of all sorts of categor categorization. 
Um, and you could see that in just the sheer variety of the, the things that he's that he shoots. He, do, he does a lot of different genres. However, of course, he's always interested in very similar things, and they're always very Christian things, uh, much more explicitly so, I think, in the, the Tree of Life. Uh, but you can definitely see it here as well, as that all of the characters are uh, interested in um, a spiritual development and things along those lines. Um, so you have you have everyone chasing after the light and trying to trying to determine what that what that is, even from the first lines of the movie where uh, the young woman is is trying to determine where her mother lives. This is sort of the metaphor throughout the, the story for her determining what divine meaning is, what purpose is, uh, what uh, in what way should she order her life in order to uh, achieve this. And uh, so she's searching. Obviously, Smith is searching. Uh, all of the, all of the characters are looking for this for this new world, for this promised land. Uh, and so the the meanings of the title, the new world, seem to be constantly shifting. Uh, the I know that the the native uh, actors in the film were somewhat alienated at first by the title, the new world. They felt like it would just present their people as being uh, suddenly discovered as if they hadn't been there before. But that that's obviously not what Malik is interested in doing. He's interested in showing us all sorts of new worlds and taking our perspectives and shifting them and think, thinking, you know, what is newness? What is, uh, what, what does that look like? And I think that's a really um, powerful impression that one takes away from the first scene of the film, uh, which is this magnificent sequence where uh, the, there's first contact is made between the Powhatan tribe and the English as they arrive in these great ships and it's uh, a, a it's Das, das Rheingold is, is playing over it. Uh, I've never said that out loud. Um, and uh, it's this strangeness that that is brought to the moment that you that I had never experienced before. As I was thinking about this story, it's like oh, the ships turn up, they meet. It's a little bit weird, but this this shows just how seismic a shift in perception it would be. Uh, to be an Englishman and then step step foot on the, in this place, it would have felt like landing on a new planet. Um, and if you were Powhatan and you looked out to, to sea and saw these ships, if you just wouldn't know what they were, they were an object that had never appeared out of the sea before. Uh, and so the, the sheer strangeness of it, the, the way in which Malik alienates you from a, a familiar story, uh, I think is incredibly emotionally effective as uh, setting the scene for uh, for this great epic as is, is this is not going to be the story that you think it is going to be you're going to uh you're going to find uh, all of these things have been re-enchanted in a way as malik uses his mythic storytelling to uh to revisit and re recreate these stories um and so uh i think that that's also true in, in the way that the uh the native actors act uh they're they're they were clearly instructed to employ a physicality that is not modern. They weren't supposed to slouch. They weren't supposed to stand in the sort of ways that we stand now. Um, there's uh, a sort of, uh, it, it is a little bit more animal-like in the way that it moves, the sort of jerky movements and the, uh, the crouching and, and jumping and all of these sort of movements that were developed as a way for the natives to move that, that was very distinct from the English actors who are who are standing and moving in much more traditional ways of acting. 
Uh, and there's a really clear distinction between these things. Uh, and that really just goes again to, to reemphasize the difference in cultures and the ways in which, again, you're, you're meeting people who might as well be from a different planet because of the, the sheer cultural difference. Um, anyway, that's all very, very emotionally effective. And I think that it, uh, it helps us look at America as a strange place. Uh, and that as, as a place that, you know, maybe we don't know, maybe we haven't fully discovered. Uh, it's, it's easy to look at America as fully discovered now. Uh, in, you know, even in 2005, it would have been easy to look at it that way. And Malik wants us to remember what it was like when that wasn't the case. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, as you say, this is a movie that you watch again and again and again. I don't know how many times I saw it before I thought about uh, the thing you mentioned that he uses the overture to Wagner's Rheingold. Right? That's uh, the, the beginning is uh, these uh, three uh, uh, nymphs, uh, spirits of the water that uh, are tricked uh, by a wicked uh, dwarf Alberich into revealing uh, the secret, the gold of the Rhine, which he steals and then sets off this entire uh, cosmic drama that is the, uh, the, the Ring of the Nibelungs of Wagner. And so, so here you see these three ships coming in and uh, the three uh, uh, Indians in the water. Uh, so there, there is the suggestion that somehow uh, what the Americans have brought, uh, what we experience as America, when it was brought here, it was akin to stealing that uh, original gold, that uh, promise. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, a strange scene because the ships are mighty and beautiful, and yet there is this great distance between uh, these bodies in the water and uh, world technology, right? Having uh, these kinds of things, you see everything, they take off the ships, all the stuff they bring with them. Uh, they are ready, so to speak. They're, compared to the Indians, they look modern. They're ready to build America. Of course, it turns out to be much more difficult than they think it's going to be. They turn out to be much less prepared than they think they are. But in the beginning, they don't seem quite so daring. You don't see uh, the, the expedition from the point of view of the English and of the old worlders, of the Europeans who are uh, undergoing this astonishing trip, uh, potentially deadly, of course. You see it from the point of view of the natives who uh, not only do not understand what is coming to them, but can't understand it. This level of complexity, you say how much is hidden in those ships, it, it's, uh, they don't know it and we don't know it because we don't know what the plot will be. And indeed becoming American does seem very, very surprising all of a sudden because of that opening scene. Yeah, and of course the, the main thing that is hidden within the ships is Smith himself, uh, who you would not expect to introduce such a prominent character by having him in the, in the hold chained, uh, chained up, but it, it says a lot about who he is and what his past is and what he has to overcome and what is hidden from the people on the shore. Uh, and anyway, I, I, I should probably run through the plot since I, we've gotten pretty well into it without, without doing that, but the story does start off with first contact. And then uh, you have John Smith, who, as I said, has, has arrives under a cloud, as they describe him. He's a mutineer. He's a bit of a pirate. 
Uh, he's, uh, for all the, the efforts that they put into historical accuracy, he dresses uh, with a, a, an amount of, uh, you know, open vests that would, you know, not put him amiss and maybe a boy band. Uh, but uh, then he, he is really determined to, to use this landing in a new world as a new start as a way to rise to his true stature. That's a, a phrase he uses uh, very regularly. He talks about make, making me a clean heart. He's, he quotes uh, this, uh, Psalm 51, which is David's uh, response after uh, his sin with Bathsheba. So he's clearly, he's clearly seeing the sins of his past as something that can be overcome in this, this paradise. He wants, to, he wants to find redemption and he wants to overcome the fact that he is the lowborn son of a farmer. Uh, so he, he wants to find a world where that doesn't matter. Um, and the other people on the ship include Captain Newport, who's Christopher Plummer, uh, noted uh, tree climber. And uh, he's, he's noble, but he can be potentially cruel. And uh, he, he is also aspirational, but his, uh, his, his aspirations come in, in a little bit more stock speeches. Um, and, uh, but he, is, he, he can be fair. Uh, and he's not, you know, there, there his, some of his underlings, you can tell that they, there is uh, jealousy and vengeance and uh, that they are, um, they're much more weak men than he is, that he, he is at least willing to, uh, he, he, he is not coming to, he says, we are not here to pillage, we are not here to, uh, to attack the natives, we need them on our side. So he comes with good, good intentions. Uh, and he doesn't want, uh, he doesn't want gold. That's, that's an important distinction. And, and that like a lot of the men, the men that are enlisted are here, just for the resources, he, he has a, a great goal in mind, which is to find the passage to the Indies. Um, and so you can tell that he's someone who wants greatness and that, that in a sense, even though Smith also wants personal redemption, he also wants this greatness and that's going to be a source of conflict for him. Um, so they encounter the natives, the young woman who uh, is usually known as Pocahontas. Uh, it, she's never actually named in the, in the first half of the film. Uh, so she, uh, and I think this is probably somewhat of a reflection of Malik. Uh, not wanting to use a name that was not necessarily hers because her birth name was probably not Pocahontas. Uh, it was probably Matuaka. Uh, there's some conflict about what her actual name was. But anyway, the, the young woman comes out of the, the wilderness. Uh, she's this beautiful and innocent, uh, almost a child at this point. And she, uh, she and her brother are just frolicking and they, they encounter this and you could see that, uh, that this is a totally new thing for them. So uh, over the course of the film, Smith ends up going out and meeting the, meeting the natives. You have the, the classic scene of Pocahontas quote unquote saving him. But in this case, it's, it's much more obviously framed as a, uh, a medicine ceremony where it's sort of a, a, a ritual bringing you back to life. And the, the important, thematic thing to take away from it is that Smith does feel like he has been cleansed, that that psalm which he has quoted has been fulfilled and that he is, uh, is free of his past, which of course is not true. Uh, but he, in the, the sequence in which he falls in love with the young woman, and uh, which is a very sweet and romantic uh, period of the film as they, uh, classical music plays, they, they wander through the fields, 
and gradually get to know one another. Uh, and she trusts him completely. She sees him as a godlike figure. She, uh, in her innocence and in her naivete, she has mistaken his technological uh, prowess and his uh, his ability to to you know use the the knowledge of his people to save save things save people in the extended edition he saves a child she sees him as someone who can do all things and who has all of this uh all of this knowledge so she equates that with a sort of godlike uh authority um of course he doesn't actually have that godlike character to go with the godlike authority and this becomes more apparent as time goes by he goes back to his people which he sees almost as a descent into hell because the uh the the fort has become mired in uh, misery and, and uh, they, they've not been able to grow anything. They don't know how to grow anything. Uh, they're uh, all searching for, for gold uh, and they're hopeless and despairing and their cannibalism has taken over. It's just all of the barbaric things uh, that have taken the fort. And he, you can tell that he despises these people, which I think somewhat colors that, that part of the film. It's not just that they are uh, barbaric it's that he he despises them uh, because there are other parts of the film in which the English come off much better uh, than they do in this this sequence but I'm not sure that John Smith has the uh, the charity to see that um, anyway uh, Pocahontas brings brings out uh, the food for them in the middle of the winter saves saves the fort and tries again to get him to come back and to reachieve the sort of enlightenment they had you know, and, and love that they had found in the forest. He doesn't, he, he feels like, he says, there's something, you don't know me. You do not know me. He's, he's trying to warn her that he is unreliable, but he also isn't willing to actually say it to her face, you know, to cut it off uh, because he's a coward. Um, and uh, at least on this point. So anyway, they, you know, summer comes around, the war begins between their peoples because the, the Powhatan tribe realizes they are not leaving. And uh, then, then conflict has ensued. Pocahontas ends up exiled from her people because she defends Smith's people. She ends up in the fort as a hostage while he has been uh, deposed as, uh, as president of the fort. Things are, things are dire. Finally, the uh, Captain Newport returns from England with resources, and you can tell that the, the tide has turned and that the English have, have won. And um, at this point, it would seem like perhaps the plot is wrapping up, but Malik actually has plenty more to tell. Uh, and he's going to start that by taking the, the Smith and uh, Pocahontas relationship and turning it in a direction that I, I think a lot of audiences in 2005 wouldn't have seen coming. Uh, and what they, that is, is that Smith abandons her. He decides that he is uh, more interested in chasing, chasing greatness and uh, that he hasn't found what he thinks he has found uh, with her, that what he knew in the forest, as he says, he has forgotten, uh, that, that this thing was a dream and that uh, he should not commit to it. So he leaves, he lies to her that he has died and she has to grieve this relationship uh, which she does with the help of a, a kindly English woman named Mary. Um, she does achieve a level of uh, a level of calm before she meets her second suitor, who's John Rolfe. Uh, Christian Bale arrives, of, of, you know, probably two thirds of the way through the film, a totally new character, a totally new 
love interest or who the, the character who has now become our primary point of view in the film. It was at John Smith at first. Now you can tell that it is Rebecca's movie because she has taken a Christian name. She is now Rebecca standing between these two, two new worlds uh, interacting and she ends up marrying Rolf may or may not love him. It's a bit of a, a awkward, awkward relationship at first because she's still not sure of her true feelings. Um, and she has unresolved uh, feelings for Smith, but that sets up the, the final third of the film in which uh, she ends up going to England. Again, this is history, it's not really a spoiler. And uh, ends up having to confront all of those uh, conflicts when she finds out Smith is alive. And uh, that the, these two very different men, Rolf, who is, again, also an Englishman, but who has a strength of character uh, and a goodness and kindness to him that is not at all something that Smith exhibits. Uh, and she has to decide as a woman now, I mean, she has uh, st started the film as, again, barely, you know, basically a child. She's now a woman and has to make a mature woman's decision about what love is, what she wants her life to look like. And all of this is expressed as well through her vision of what the divine is and what uh, what a life lived in uh, relationship to that will look like. And she does eventually discover this at the end of the film. Yeah, uh, altogether, the movie seems to be about uh, this young woman who starts out really a child. But uh, th this shift in perspective, the difference between these two men played by uh, Colin Farrell and Christian Bale, Captain Smith and then John Rolfe, is astonishing. In, as you say, you don't expect the movie to turn this way, although in a way it makes perfect sense. Uh, after all, America does become America. Uh, it's not just uh, romantic adventurers. Uh, Colin Farrell, as you suggested, plays this uh, beautiful coward he is, uh, it, it might not be the best performance of his career, but it is. it might be the best movie in which he ever showed up. And uh, so you see his strengths as an actor, how much he can suggest self-doubt, how much he can uh, uh, show of his weakness. He's, he's supposed to be a much stronger and more dashing man, being that he is so handsome and so well-built, but the, uh, you know, he, he advertises a glass jaw. This is uh, this turns out to be very important for the movie because uh, it, it is told largely about this young woman. Uh, it, the fact that he becomes an adventurer, that he or, or is restored to his adventurous nature, that he wants to achieve something great, turns out not to be such an important thing. It's uh, it's not redeeming on the one hand. And it doesn't do anything good for him uh, personally. Uh, when he reappears in her life in London near the end of the film, he's, he's contrite in a certain way, but he hasn't really changed. Uh, he, you could say he learned to prefer the dream, love in the forest of the new world, to reality, to what has come of him. But that's, that's about it. In a certain way, she has become more complex than he was. That's perhaps the, more, the strangest thing about characterization, about the movie as a whole. 
Smith is the one who notices what these people are like because of what he is like. He knows he's a duplicitous fellow and that he loves freedom in a way these other Englishmen don't. This is what uh, makes him an adventurer. He, he is like the young men of Queen Elizabeth's court, uh, not a few of whom ended up executed for treason or uh, attempted treason. Uh, so with him, as you say, he starts out a mutineer. Uh, he is also the man who gives the all-American speech. He has this uh, moment when he says, a new start, a fresh beginning. Here the blessings of the earth are bestowed upon all. None shall grow poor. Here there is good ground for all and no cost but one's labor. We shall build a true commonwealth, hard work and self-reliance, our virtues. We shall have no landlords to, re to wreak us with high rents or extort the fruit of our labor. The, uh, you know, is this a promised land or is it John Locke's second treatise in civil government? Uh, maybe both. America has always had this ambiguity. So you'd expect him to be more of a hero since he wants this kind of uh, equal freedom, a certain escape from authority. He doesn't want to be jailed or anymore. And uh, he was a mutineer because he doesn't like authority. How American is that? Uh, that allows him to see that he has a lot in common with these Indians. But also this specific difference uh, as, as rejecting authority, he is a complex man in a complex world. He's, he notices that they are not given to guile, to deceit, to the complexities, uh, the self-deception that uh, are, are inevitable in civilization. The... Um, to the extent to which the, the Indians are sometimes called savages and sometimes called naturals, they point to a simplicity that has to do with uh, also with an inability to lie to themselves, not just to other people. And, uh, and John Smith doesn't seem to ever get past this peculiarity, a tendency to lie to himself about beautiful things. For a while, he thinks that she is the beautiful vision. Then he thinks when the opportunity comes up that the Northwestern Passage, that is the beautiful vision. Of course, uh, the beautiful runs ahead of the real. Uh, uh, all, all Terrence Malik movies are very beautiful and very, very sad. That beauty is tragic, you just can't escape this thought. It's the mood of the movies. Uh, another way to put it is, it, uh, as you said, contemplative. But, you know, sometimes you contemplate mathematical, geometrical figures or something, and that's not sad, okay? Well, this movie, oh, brother, you know, he's going to break her heart the moment they meet. And, uh, it, and yet uh, that somehow teaches her more than it does him. Yes, there's, uh, it's very much a, a story as she grows up, as she, she learns what wisdom is and what, uh, you know, that there are certain, certain sorts of people that one should not trust. And that this do, does mirror the fall in that she is this, in this Edenic place and she comes to realize what complexity is and what lies and deception are. Uh, I do think that there, there's a slight sense of an unreliable narrator when, when Smith is describing these people in such, uh, such terms, because you can see that they have their own machinations going on, even if they aren't clearly as negatively portrayed as the English. Uh, that Smith is, uh, he does see everything with rose-colored glasses. Um, at the same time, there is definitely a, a sense that Malik presents these people as uh, being innocent of certain things which make life more difficult uh, in, in, a, in a sense. And that like, they, they don't have a sense of time. They don't have, uh, again, this, this complexity. 
which is why again like in Pocahontas's case she she can be she can be deceived uh because she's because she's young as well is that you know she's not just a representative of her people she's also a very young woman who uh is deceived by a handsome and roguish and dashing Colin Farrell uh it's happened to many over the years and uh anyway so she but there is I I always I actually find the ending a very very happy one uh because she she makes this moral choice and she doesn't end up alone because of it uh she she has to choose between uh the the false vision and the real one which is uh of, of a, a man who will love and who will stay with her and who is faithful to her um and who is not taking advantage of her who, who is truthful um so it's I think that it, you know, in that in that like it doesn't uh, it doesn't just disabuse her of her fantasies. It does give her uh, a, a real version of them in, in the end, even if it's less romantic and it's less sweet that, you know, m many of the scenes between her and Rolf are shot in the fall as opposed to the spring. There's there's less optimism to them. There's a sort of mournfulness uh, because so many of the things about the relationship with Rolf involve uh, the fact that it is a second relationship. That heartbreak came before it and that uh her people were driven away uh that that it's uh the relationship with Rolf I think is one that that shows again as a story of America in that like uh you have at the beginning this this beautiful and glorious meeting between peoples in which there's so much optimism about what could be and then of course it it turns out tragically as people uh begin shooting at each other and you could the, the Indians are driven away out into the wilderness, uh, the beginning of a, a long and tragic uh, uh, trail of tears, essentially, you know, this, this is the beginning of all of those, all of those tragic things that, that, that is hinted at in, in all of those sequences as they, uh, as they diminish. Um, and yet you have with Roth this, uh, again, totally unexpected uh, as the, as the movie comes up, goes along, he comes in and he represents what it could have been uh, if John Smith had been John Rolfe, if he had been a different sort of man. Uh, and uh, so it it shows what, you know, again, what what might have been. And that there's a real sweetness to to that and a real hope, I think, uh, which we see as, as the story goes on. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. There's a lot about the young woman's growing up and that involves heartbreak and misery because she, indeed, her love was idolatrous. It says that he, she thinks of him as a god in a certain way. I think this is not something we admit anymore, but it is typical of children. They do idolize their parent or whoever. It, uh, it goes much farther than we dare admit. And in the movie, it comes across in... Uh, uh, in a very clear way, but perhaps it takes some getting used to reality to be able to recognize it. Pocahontas is a very young woman. Indeed, at the beginning, she's a child. She's a young woman at the end, I think. Uh, and uh, that means that uh, she is uh, malleable. She can become English. She, she does become English, at least up to a point. She learns a new language, embraces a new way of life, and is baptized and is finally given a name. She's one of us now. It's a good biblical name, Rebecca. Right? The, and uh, uh, it's, 
presumably it's not uh, accidental. You know, you, you wouldn't immediately compare the relationship to Rebecca and Isaac because Isaac is not much of a thinker. Rebecca is much wiser than he is. Whereas this girl, nobody would accuse her of being wise or even worldly wise. But in another sense, of course, uh, um, this, this is about uh, giving birth to the next generation and to the, uh, the ultimately to Israel, or in this case to America, the almost chosen people, as uh, Lincoln put it once. So I think that's why the, the name is chosen this way. And uh, as a child, she can learn. There is something that is neither Indian nor English, and that's children. Children don't really belong to a way of life until they are brought up in it. But it allows her to see the, the light of nature and the light of grace, ultimately both, which is what you always see in Terence Malik movies, of course. Um, the, the Indians are more natural, and they don't have these kinds of complicated problems that come with mortality and with planning about the future and worrying over time and all of these things you mentioned. You have to explain somehow that although the Indians are much more natural than the Europeans in one sense, it was these English people who came with their ships. Uh, the, the Indians weren't going to go anywhere and explore Europe or what have you. Why is that? Well, they were satisfied with their way of life. The, the English are essentially restless. They cannot live well enough alone. And, uh, the, and then, of course, you know, what will they make in America? New England? Is Jamestown? Is Virginia going to be the same as what they tried to escape? It's not clear because it's not clear whether they can escape themselves. Was the problem whatever was happening in England or are they the problem? The complexity makes them uh, uh, not entirely trustworthy. Of course, uh, them is, you know, since we are, there are ancestors that we're as restless as they are. Uh, the reason the movie plays so well to Americans, I would say, is because uh, it shows the essential character in an earnest way. Just like the filming, um, Malik likes to get this out of characters, out of the actors, earnestness. They don't hide so much. They're not trying to be all that clever. And uh, it might be hard to accept at first that they're not playing clever, they're not being sophisticated, they're not putting on a show in a certain sense. But I think it's very, very believable the, that uh, Pocahontas will be brought up into this new way of life. And it's not obviously better than the way of life she had before. It takes time to realize in what sense it might be better. And I think you're right. It's that when you see her as a woman becoming a wife and making a choice, you see that that kind of complexity is worthwhile. It's not as deluded as looking for uh, uh, a naval adventure or a, a maritime adventure. Uh, going and, and founding Jamestown is very ambiguous. You don't know how this is going to turn out and whether these people are good. As you say, after when Captain Smith has to compare them to the Indians whom, uh, to, on whom he usually looks down, he is shocked. These people are, uh, these Europeans, these English look disgusting. They are diseased and dirty and unable to deal with themselves. There, there is nothing beautiful among them, and they also can't get along just under under the ordinary requirements of food, clothing, and shelter, which are universal. It's not just English law, so to speak, or aspirations that they fail, but nature itself. No wonder he is so shocked, and it is indeed sort of hellish. And of course, there's some there must be some self-contempt there. He is like them too. 
that that's strange. These people are in a way much more advanced or civilized and in another way helpless. They have to be saved. There's another similar ambiguous statement. John Smith takes over the colony and he goes around telling people, he who does not work, neither shall he eat. Now, of course, that's an all-American sentiment that you could say, uh, again, uh, John Locke on property. My mother used to quote it all the time. But, and because it's biblical, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's the apostle in the second epistle to the Thessalonians. Uh, and you wonder, is, 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 is there something even in him that realizes the requirements of faith of what it makes, means to make a real community? Does he hate these people he's ruling because they are not a real community? It's a very ambiguous moment. Yeah, the, it's it's this fascinating sequence as he ends up in the fort again, and there's a there's a madman who is spouting prophecies from uh, various Old Testament prophets, and it, it's a collection of different things, but it's mostly um, shouted and angry prophecies of a new Jerusalem of you know, they're all positive property prophecies or not, not all of them, but some of them, you know, he talks about, uh, cause I looked them up. There's a bunch from Amos and Isaiah 65. Uh, there are some warnings of judgment, some moral advice. It says, I, you know, I, I despise your, uh, your offerings and I would have you offer love instead. So the recognition of hypocrisy, and then suddenly a quote from Romans, uh, love good and hate evil, um, or a paraphrase from Romans. And so, there's a there's a clear sense in which there, there are people who are cursed, who are under judgment, who whose visions of a promised land have gone awry. Um, and uh, Smith is he's he's also I think he doesn't pray a lot throughout the course of the movie, but he does pray when he's in the fort and when they're being attacked. And he he suddenly discovers uh, the ability to to ask for mercy. Um, he, this doesn't seem to, to stay with him. He's someone, and I think that's a theme throughout the film is that, that people, people have these sort of mountaintop moments and then they immediately abandon it when they, when they are not physically in that, that situation. Uh, and part of Rebecca's spiritual development and her maturing is being able to access that uh, spirituality no matter where she is. Uh, and I think that this is something Malik intends for us to recognize is that maturity is about maintaining one's sense of what is right and of, of the divine, even when you are outside of the immediate emotional circumstances that uh, in which you first recognized it. Uh, so she remembers what she knew in the forest, even when she's in England. You can see that that she has a clarity about uh, what what priorities she should have and what is good and true that John Smith never is able to to remember he he just doesn't have that i mean he he almost understands it at the end uh but, and i think that he he understands in a certain sense that he has lost things because he was never able to to make that commitment uh but uh but he is he's not able to remember these things beyond the immediate moment uh which shows his immaturity um and uh anyway it's an it's an interesting sequence as he he does actually rep repent and uh and ask uh, you know, make him make of me a clean heart, all of these things. Though at the same time, he's also he's also yelling at people. He's taking on a sort of godlike authority within his own fort. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, which is uh, a phrase that Jesus says to people. It's not a phrase that you say to each other. Um, it's uh, he's, he's putting himself in a place of uh, authority, uh, which is interesting, given uh, 
given his beginnings as a, a, a farmer, um, he's, he's, he is aspirational. He wants to, uh, he wants to become the king of the English. Um, and you could see this in, in the ways that he ultimately, ambition is his, is his driving force above the desire for personal redemption. Uh, and that, that I think is the, the ability to distinguish between uh, a physical ambition or a sinful ambition and a spiritual ambition, both of which are, the language for, for those can be mixed up in the film. John, uh, early on, he talks about what is this that drives me on towards what is best, which is clearly a, a healthy uh, thing that he wants to, he wants to go further and further into this land. And I think that Malik encourages us to think that exploration is good. Uh, that exploration doesn't necessarily have to include domination and oppression within it. Um, that it does is the tragedy of the film. Um, but that is when characters mis mistake this desire to go further for, uh, for something that, that, that includes, um, well, you know, seeking for gold as opposed to recognizing that, that the, the riches of the new world are something that are quite different, uh, that Pocahontas is the Indies in a way that he realizes in the end that what he was looking for all along was in her and that by being too immature to see that, by being too, uh, too childish and too selfish to see that early in the film, he has sailed right past her. Uh, you know, she says, you'll find your Indies. He says, I think I might've sailed right past them uh, as he looks at her. And so he finally realizes what he's lost uh, and what mistake he's made in uh, his, his ambitions, he's, he's, he's stopped um, because I mean, she, she's ambitious as well. And that like, she's, uh, she also wants to find something. She wants to explore and she wants to know what a new world is like. Uh, she is different from her people in that way in that she is always asking him questions about where he's from. She wants to know what England is like. She wants to go there. She wants to see it. Uh, and again, like I said, exploration is something that I think the film sees as a positive. Uh, as long as it doesn't come with domination. Well, yeah, it's a, it's an ambiguous thing. They fall in love by learning each other's language, and the and at that point you don't know exactly who's teaching whom, but um, but it turns out that she ends up believing him, so to speak, and presumably that's because he just knows much more about the world. He is. He comes from a people who have developed science, to say nothing else. Uh, but the. But whether that's good, uh, it's not even obviously good for him, right? It, it gives him broader horizons, which increases ambitions. His beautiful visions send him out on a, a life's journey, and uh, the vision you get of that is. Uh, you see him in the ice of Greenland. He's given up that paradise for that. Um, well, the beautiful runs ahead of the good, to say the least. And, uh, and yet he does stand for a part of America uh, and for, of course, a part of human nature. We, we're not that righteous. We can never work things out that well. The... Um, uh, I think the movie shows this sort of Tocquevillian dyad. Uh, Captain Smith is the piratical Southerners, 
and uh, John Rolfe stands for the puritanical northerners, the egalitarians of America, the Christians of America, ultimately. But, uh, but you know, in a way, both are necessary, right? It is strange about Americans that the great politicians were almost all Virginians, and they all had slaves. And uh, you don't get the one without the other. You don't get uh, Jamestown without the John Smiths of uh, England. It's um, uh, Pocahontas in that sense has this all-American task of somehow surviving the, those disappointments, the, not the banishing of hope exactly, but the breaking of the heart. These, this beautiful man turns out to be treacherous and uh, it makes her miserable, but uh, she learns to live with it. Uh, she learns to look for other hopes and to think otherwise about love. Uh, you know, that, that happens to a lot of people. I promise you, if you're young, uh, it's very likely that America will break your heart. If you can put your life back together again, that would be great. You should um, think about that ahead of time if possible. Uh, so many people have tried so many things, have done so much, and uh, not that much of it lasts. Uh, you, you get a sense already with John Smith's doubts and fears. He, he's the martial side of America. He's, he is said by others who held him as prisoners that he's the only one there who has experienced the experience of war. That's why they send him into the wilderness. Of course, he's expendable too, but the two are connected. Not even they like to see this kind of man up close if they could uh, avoid it because he is dangerous. He's dangerous to them too, not just to other people, not just to the Indians. But, uh, well, that's necessary. Those manly virtues are necessary. We don't see much of them, however. We see the weakness, the, the self-doubt, the restlessness, these imaginations that lead him to abandon the only good thing he was ever going to have. Um, again, it's a movie about her rather than him, and therefore about maturity and uh, leaving a future behind. She has a child before she dies. There will be a future. That's uh, the hope you can live with these terrible things. And at some point, the piratical side of things for all its greatness will give in to the more religious side of America. And as this, uh, as unexpectedly in a way, John Rolfe replaces Captain Smith in the story and in her affection. And uh, you know, that changes her way of life. She learns to become an agricultural uh, worker. Uh, now she has to work the land. She never had to work the land as an Indian princess. This is toil. It's like, uh, it's like Genesis 3 being kicked out of Eden. There will be toil now, and there will be the risk of death in giving birth to children. But that is the human condition. Uh, and it turns out that she bears it much better than he does, although he, is, he, he, he seems so much more sophisticated in the beginning. That is, he was uh, wondering about betraying her even as he fell in love with her. Uh, she turns out to bear the human condition and the American future much better. Yes, there's, I hadn't, uh, Colin Farrell is no Ethan Edwards, but uh, there is a, a sense in which it, it's hard to imagine a John Rolfe being the first, the first uh, violent man to go out into the wilderness. Uh, so there, there is an implication perhaps that the, the, the Colin Farrells are necessary, but it is impossible to imagine his John Smith settling down on a farm uh, because for one thing, he's, he's embarrassed of his past as a farmer. And even if he, if he wants a de democratic society, he wants one where he's running it. And uh, his, he, he has a, he has all of this baggage that he's seeking to escape. And John Rolfe doesn't seem at all interested in, uh, 
in escaping that, even at the, even if he is also not interested in living within Jamestown, uh, because he also has a bit of a difficult relationship with the Jamestown leaders. He's, he's someone who lives out on his own. In the extended edition, there's a sequence in which they are trying to browbeat him into uh, writing a letter explaining to the king and queen, I believe, why he wants to marry Rebecca and to explain that this is actually part of a whole plot to convert the, na the natives, uh, which is dishonest, but uh, which is considered part of their whole uh, philosophy about why one should do this and why, why it is okay to, to, to do this interracial marriage. Um, and he, he consents to this unhappily uh, in order to marry her. Um, but you could see in, in this that he doesn't, he doesn't uh, even if he's not a mutineer, he's not comfortable with the, the corruptness of the old world either. Uh, and they live in this sort of middle ground between her people and his, uh, his people outside on their farm uh, and they are sort of the original pioneers here with uh, this, as well, the, you know, their, their son being one of the first Virginians uh, and uh, whose descendants are still living today. Yeah, that's right. The, he's also an unusual guy. And I think that brings out the, the complexity of the influence of the Bible on America. As you said, Captain John Smith has a certain love of the Bible because of the greatness of Jesus or of King David. That's the part of the Bible that he likes. Uh, with with uh, the, the people in the colony, given their misery, uh, indeed, it tends to be prophecies of disaster, but also of hope. Somehow the misery of Jamestown is full of these prophetic utterances, these biblical promises that one day justice will work out. That one day, somehow the, the, the whole human misery that they undergo will, will be redeemed and therefore will be shown to have been worth it. And of course, you wonder, you know, is America today really all that different? Uh, the, the same biblical hopes are shouted in the same historical way. That is, we're not at peace even with this, uh, but we can't escape it either. And uh, on the other hand, on the outskirts, there is this guy who is a, a Christian man without being so troubled. He is... Uh, he's the only person you could call close to contented or serene. The, and uh, that might have something to do with the fact that we see him both in Virginia and in England. Uh, he, he, has, you know, he doesn't show his complexity, but somehow he fits in both worlds, but he prefers the new world. And as you say, he prefers to be at the outskirts of the colony at that. He, he understands the need to escape the old world with its limitations. It's not an accident that he finds it easier to find love with this uh, strange, savage young woman or half-savage than uh, in England. But uh, whatever that drama is that led him out there, you don't really see that. Somehow it's turned into something good in his case. He doesn't have uh, mad hopes. His somehow his suffering has led him to be a, a fairly good, decent guy. It's, uh... Which is a theme throughout it is that there are certain people who suffering leads them uh, to, towards wisdom and others that uh, it leads them towards resentment and towards bitterness that they then take out on everyone else as, as Smith does. There's a wonderful uh, character halfway through the film, Mary, who uh, I, again, is, is, I think, a little more prominent in, in the extended edition, but is a, a wonderful example of 
Malik complicating the the narrative between the the horrible and hip, hypocritical English and the noble uh, the noble savages, as it were. But uh, she she gives this wonderful maternal advice to Rebecca. Uh, she tells her, you know, that man he's told you a pack of lies, which is a wonderful colloquial little little way of putting it from this working class lady explaining to a princess about how men how men can deceive. And but then she also gives a wonderful wise speech where she says a nature like yours can turn trouble into good all this sorrow will give you strength and point you to a higher way think of a tree how it grows around its wounds if a break branch breaks off it don't, don't stop but keeps reaching towards the light we must meet misfortune boldly and not suffer it to frighten us we must act the play out and live our troubles down my lady uh, which is a wonderful speech, and it, it encapsulates so much of the imagery of the film. So many of the uh, characters are likened to trees, um, and even if they don't have to climb them necessarily, but uh, they are striving for the light. All of these shots through windows, looking up, trying to, to reach the light, Rebecca reaching for the sky, John from the first images of the film with his chained hands reaching up towards the sky. They're all trying to find the divine, uh, and they're all like trees, but there's, you know, if, if you're, if you're more like a tree than, than others, then you can grow around your wounds. And, and some of, some people can't do that. Uh, the Mary recognizes that Rebecca's nature is one that can do that, or at least she encourages her to, to be one like that. And since earlier in the film, Rebecca has been called, you know, Smith calls her my America. I think this is Malik telling us too about something about America's nature that that this is this is a country that for as, as much tragedy uh, as it has experienced it can grow beyond these things it can find wisdom or at least he hopes it can uh, and that through the story of this young woman she is this sort of avatar of the the spirit of America as she she learns learn you know as she has her heart broken but then she does she finds. Uh, a man like Rolf, who again she calls him, she says, as he is like a tree, he shelters me. Um, and she she finds someone who has true substance and who again is also actually religious, but not in anywhere near as flashy a way. You can see him praying quietly as he hopes that his wife will return to him, uh, and that there's a there's a goodness that just radiates off the man. Uh, and even even if he sees himself as as vain, uh, I think that. The, the vanities that he thinks of himself, he says, you will learn to love me. Well, he was of course right, because he, he does know that, uh, that, that she is someone who is, is still uncertain and young. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he it, it is something that he ultimately does achieve, that he, he wins her love uh, gently uh, over, over the course of time and never, never, never domineering, never dominating, never saying this is the way it must be. He's never like a god to her, but he is like a tree. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. And uh, I think uh, our audience must have figured out by now why this is such a Thanksgiving movie, why it's such a reflection on America. Uh, uh, it's an imagined beginning that corresponds all too well to the drama we are undergoing now. And not merely how we experience it, but it is interpreted in a way that makes it bearable and perhaps uh, clarifies what is at stake. The, um, uh, in a certain way, uh, we want a certain savage freedom for children. We want to protect them above all from experience. And 
at least it used to be the case that Americans did recognize what was noble in the Indians in a way in which it is not in Europeans, because they were freer. They were less tied up with taking orders, with they were less tied up with uh, being enslaved or indentured, with uh, you know even today having a boss. Uh, the, it was not the same thing. And that's something that Americans always yearn for. This is why Indians had such a reputation in America as free and why they have been so tied up in the American imagination. Well, when there was an American imagination, recently it has all been censored, but it used to be that uh, this was um, a deep aspiration and uh, from a somewhat caricatural level at, uh, as, as uh, the logos of sports teams from the mid 20th century to something more serious. Uh, there was a grandeur because the Indians seemed somehow more fit to the American land itself. They were savage because it was savage and they were somehow better prepared to deal with it. And, uh, and that nobility is uh, a dream. I don't think Americans can escape. It's, it, it gives freedom, it's beauty. This, that is this notion that somehow it all fits, that it, like this, Americans could finally fit into the cosmos that is America. Uh, otherwise, it's just a coincidence of names. It's a kind of self-deception. But of course, there is another side to things that you see with uh, John Rolfe, that uh, Americans aren't always loud, brash, or um, uh, you know, looking to build a continental democracy and uh, create this empire of liberty. Sometimes they want to live their lives. They, they have a better understanding, that is to say, of what life is to them. That to some extent you have to deal with yourself, uh, and uh, that's uh, th that's much harder to depict. It always somehow looks less beautiful than this romance. The, you know, the, there's no way that Christian Bell can be as attractive as Colin Farrell. Um, but uh, but there is something to it. I mean, uh, Christian Bell, he was Batman. That's uh, th that's also an all American aspiration. If even though it's somehow ugly. In both cases, it's somehow more tied with justice and with the hope that we can do right by each other. Um, and that, uh, you know, it, it does not have the charms that people go to the cinema for, mostly. But I think when people see it, they will recognize that it's also a longing of the heart for rest to anchor around the truths that made America. That, uh, you could say that you, know, you also have to explain not just why Americans fought so many wars, did so many catastrophic things, but also why didn't America go to hell? Sometimes when you think about, uh, especially in politics, but not exclusively, it seems like it's all going to hell. But there are certain truths that anchor the American heart and the movie tries to bring that out, especially through this marriage of Rebecca and John Rolfe. Yes, and I think that it ultimately presents a very positive and optimistic and hopeful expression of what that could look like, that reconciliation is possible, that their son, who is you know, one of the first multiracial children in America and who is the, the son of an Englishman and of a Powhatan woman, he represents this possibility of reconciliation. The last lines in the movie is that, you know, all must die. It is enough that our son will live. And you see him and his father sailing off into the sunset together, which, of course, is not actually how it happened. His father returned to America on his own and then died before his son could see him again. So the re reality of it was much more tragic. But Malik is interested in looking to the future. 
and in looking at this child as the son of these two new worlds interacting in a way that is actually loving and Christian. It's not a, a relationship like the, the Smith and Rebecca one, which was abusive, that there is a possible way for us to reach out to each other. And that's, it's just such a beautiful image to end the film on of a child and of this beautiful and loving relationship. And I will say Christian Bale was always my favorite in this one. So I just gotta, gotta stick in his corner a little bit there. But it, if nothing else, just because of his goodness, because he is someone who is so obviously unreliable and not telling a pack of lies. Colin Farrell, I always see him in a movie. And I think, you know what? Don't trust that. <laughs> that is like uh, the choice in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. You have this larger than life John Wayne and then there's Jimmy Stewart. And uh, America love both John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, but wisdom in a woman to prefer Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, and... yeah. Marrying Jimmy Stewart is always the better decision there. All right, Hannah. I think we've come around to the conclusion of our conversation. Uh, we can always recommend our audience Jimmy Stewart. The, um, <laughs> Thank you for recommending this for a conversation. It's the best idea I've heard for Thanksgiving for a podcast. And so I recommend our audience to watch the movie or watch it again and celebrate Thanksgiving as Americans should. So thank you very much. And uh, let's do another podcast soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All the best. Thank you.